The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis 3, verses 1 through 9. The word of God speaks to us. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So woman, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? This is God's word to us. Good morning. We haven't had a chance to meet. My name is Jeff Nine. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and we'd love to get to meet you um, if, uh, if you're new. I like you if you've been around for a while, too, so don't, don't feel uh, left out. Uh, and if you're here and you're not a Christian, I, I want to say a special thanks for being here. Like, it, it means a lot to us that, you would, that you'd be willing to, to, to come and spend some time with us. Um, we don't have all the answers. Um, we're, we're not here, but we do want to step into any questions. So any questions you have, we'd love to explore with you and, and dialogue. There's no, there's no question that's going to get you pushed out of the door. There's no skepticism that'll get you marginalized. Uh, we'd love to engage. And so um, let's, let's engage together, and, uh, and thanks for being here. We are starting today a new series uh, we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, stepping into the book of Genesis, primarily the, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Now, these chapters are really profound and say so much about, about creation, about who we are, but so much about who God is. And what, what, what I think we're, we're finding ourselves, the reason that we are stepping into this as a church is as, as pastors, we are feeling the ways in which different ideologies and ideas from the world are not just floating out there, but they actually sink into our own souls and often begin to form us and deform us in ways that we can miss. And so there's an important, there's an important moment to, to, to come and say, all right, God, would you speak to us from your word to reframe the way that we see the world, the re reframe the way we see uh, ourselves, and reframe the way we see you? And so that's what we want to do through this study in the book of Genesis. So next week, we're going to jump into the beginning. We're going to look at Genesis 1. Today, what I want us to do is look a little bit of an overview, but really focus on what is it, what, what am I, what do we, um, what do we need to step towards over the next couple of months? What are the questions we need to process? What are the, the things that we need to engage? And so here's my prayer is that God's going to do some really deep things in us over this time. So I'm going to pray for you and pray for us and ask you to pray that the Lord would form us through this series. Um, so God, would you shape us? Would you give us, uh, would, you, would you reform our imagination, our way of seeing the world, the way, of see, the way that we see you and the way we even see ourselves to line up with what is true? Would you expose those ways in which we have absorbed lies? 
Would you anchor us? And so my, my, my prayer, God, is that you would form us over this series in deep and profound ways, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start with a question. When, when was the last time that you were, you were truly filled with wonder and awe? I mean that kind of jaw-dropping sense of, 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 of being not just, not just imagining something, but almost be, being captured by it. You see, there's something about um, profound things in life that has a, have a way of like pulling us outside of ourselves in, in a way of almost reframing how we see ourselves. I'm a nerd. If you've been around here for any length of time, you're like, I know. And part of the way that my nerddom showed up as a kid was I loved just stargazing and staring at the stars for all the questions that it elicited. Now, I grew up in a place where you could see the stars. That was a benefit. But I, but I remember staring at the stars wondering, what's going on? How are they held together? Where like all of these big questions emerged, which led me uh, over time into even studying physics in undergrad. Now, you'll make note of the fact I'm not a physicist, which tells you I wasn't smart enough to study physics, but I was enamored by it. I loved the big questions of life. Over time, I began to, to get fascinated with philosophy. Again, I'm a nerd. I, I love these big questions, but here's the thing. Nerd or not, we all face these things from time to time. We confront things that are so transcendent, so beyond us, so above us, that they like pull us out of ourselves. So my question, coming back to it, what, what captivates you? What makes your jaw drop? When was the last time you were overwhelmed by grandeur, by awe, and by transcendence? Now, the reason I want you to slow down and ask that question is because those questions are invitations into things that really, really matter in life. And it's those very things that capture us that I think bring us into the questions that Genesis 1 to 11 is going to lead us into. It, it, is, it is confronting these profound things that lead us to questions that matter, the questions that Genesis gives us. Here's a, here's a quote that I, that I found helpful from Immanuel Kant. He says this, Two things fill the mind with ever-increasing wonder and awe, the starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. You see, there's something about looking upwards and something about looking inwards that brings us into confrontation with questions that matter, with things that really, really matter. Now, humanity has always been consumed with myths. Whether it's, whether it's in the ancient Near Eastern, uh, like the, the Babylonian creation myth, Enuma Elish, uh, there, there, are, uh, there are many, many other narratives out there, many myths out there to try to explain where did the world come from? What God's in control? Who am I? How do I relate to the gods? All of these questions uh, confront us. Or we can go to real Roman and Greek mythology and if it's not Disney just pulling those out because they're trying to make a buck on a retelling of one of these, what, what these myths are doing is they're trying to, what they were trying to do was by talking about the gods and the goddesses and the wars between them to explain how this world became what it is and how we make our way in the world. You see, these myths weren't just fireside stories. They weren't there because we were bored and we didn't have Netflix yet. These myths were actually meant to anchor us in some sense of reality. What's real? What matters in life? Well, humanity has always been consumed by myths, not just in ancient times, but also in modern ones. It's just that the myths have changed. 
We are products of the Enlightenment, whether you like it or not. We have been shaped by a way of seeing the world, a new kind of myth, a modern myth that over the last couple hundred years has reframed the way that we see ourselves in relationship to the world around us. It's changed the way that we see ourselves. It's changed the way that we've seen the divine, if in fact there is a divine. And it's, I think these myths are there because there's a deep hunger and a deep ache inside of us that emerges particularly in times in which we experience beauty, when we experience suffering, when we experience joy, and we, when we experience pain. It's these experiences bring us into these questions. You see, myths matter because they shape us. By myth, I, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about a make-believe story. That, that's what we often use, oh, that's a myth, and we mean it as like that was just make-believe. Myth is more than that. Myth is a story that locates us in reality and names us for who we are. A myth is a story that's meant to give us an understanding of self, an understanding of place, and an understanding of our relationship in that place. That's what a myth is. It's to give us a new way of seeing the world and a new way of being in the world. That's what myths do. This is why we're stepping into Genesis 1 to 11. Because friends, we need a true myth. We need a, a, to be anchored in a real story, a story that is true, that actually frames up who we are, what this world is, who God is, and how we live in the world. That's what Genesis 1 to 11 is about. As we explore this book over the coming months, here's a question I want you to be asking yourself. In what ways has your view of the world and your way of being in the world been shaped more by the culture around us and the myths of the culture around us? And in what ways is it, is it shaped by Holy Scripture? In what ways is it shaped by the Word of God? That, those are questions I want us to be asking as we walk through this whole series. But this morning, I want us to deal with three things. The first is I want us to look at the myths that are shaping us. Because like it or not, we live in a world in which there are, there are myths, there are stories that, are, that, are, that we are receiving and hearing and are absorbing that are actually shaping us. So I want to look at the myths that are shaping us. Second, I want to look at the questions that still haunt us. As much as those, questions, those myths promise answers to our questions, often we find questions that they can't answer. And third, I want us to look at the God who won't leave us alone. You ready to go? All right, let's go. These stories that we tell ourselves shape us in profound ways. I want to start by looking at Genesis chapter 11. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you, we're going to have the scripture on the screens through this whole series, but I want to ask you to bring your Bibles with you. And I want you to spend time in these chapters through the week and on Sundays looking and let's let this text teach us. Let's let this this text expose us. Look at Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they made brick, they had a brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, I'm not going to unpack these verses. We're going to get to that in a couple of months. 
The story matters. It's really, really profound and really beautiful and really haunting in a lot of ways. We're going to deal with that in a couple of months. What I want you to see here, though, is that the actions that these ancient Near Eastern people took was anchored in a way in which they saw the world. In other words, what they did followed what they believed. What they believed about themselves, what they believed about their future, what they believed about society drove them to a particular kind of actions because these stories that we tell ourselves shape the way we see the world and shape the way we live in the world. Now, at the fear of reductionism, I think there are five predominant myths that our day is saturated in and that we are saturated in that I think are shaping us in ways that we're not always aware of. There are five myths, five modern myths that I think are forming us in deep ways and we need to be aware of these things because it's actually these myths that Scripture is going to confront in Genesis 1 to 11. Those myths are the myths of secularism, scientism, technology, the therapeutic, and autonomy. Let's look at them in order because these actually mark us. They mark our age. First off, I want to say this. We are a secular age. We are a secular age. And what I mean by that is not that everybody disbelieves in God and everybody believes that only what we have is the, the flesh around us. As a matter of fact, if you, if, you, if, you, uh, if you take a survey of Americans, you're going to find more people believe in some, some form of the divine than don't. So by, by secular, I don't simply mean that, that we disbelieve in God. I'm saying this, that in the ultimate things that matter, in the, when, when push comes to shove, God doesn't really enter the equation. That when it comes to the things that matter, we look at humanity as the ultimate, at the center. That we are, as, as secular people, people that aren't looking to the gods to save us, we're looking to our own hands. This is what it means for us to be a secular age. We've basically said, if God exists, if, he's irrelevant. We're on our own. That myth has affects us in ways that we're not aware of. The second myth that forms us, forms us into a scientific age. We are a scientific age. What I mean by this, I'm not against science. I love science. I, I enjoy it. Again, I'm not very good at it, but I enjoy it. And, and, I, and I'm fascinated by the, the questions that it asks and the questions it explores um, and the theories and all that kind of stuff. I, I just love that. But a scientific age goes a step beyond that. It's not simply interested in science. It's that we begin to think that every question we have, we can get an answer to if only we have enough time and the right tools. That somehow, if something is to be known, we can discover it, and we will discover it. Just give us a minute. Do you understand what that does to the way that we explore truth? I think I have to discover truth, unveil truth, not receive it. We become a scientific age, we're a scientific age, which now means I go to the Bible with my set of questions, asking it, demanding of it to answer my questions, rather than going to it asking what questions I should ask. We're a scientific age. We think that we can find all the answers. Third, we're a technological age. Again, I'm not against technology. I have lots of gadgets and I like all the new ones. They're fun. They're expensive, but they're fun. I'm not against technology, but when we approach life as if 
uh, from a technological viewpoint, we actually begin to think that we can solve all our problems, just give us the right stuff. I mean, we're the people that take sand, melt it down, form, form microchips, and build AI. Like, actually, that's, that's pretty profound. But then we begin to think that somehow, well, if I can create that, I can create a solution to that problem too. And we begin to think that every problem just simply needs to be met with the right, with the right technique. Find the right spiritual hack, and you can be a happy, joyous person. Buy my book, 1995, New York Times bestseller, and I'll tell you all the secrets to life and happiness. And we actually buy it. We believe that life is solved by technique. The third thing that defines our age is that we're a therapeutic age. A therapeutic age. Now, let me be very clear. I'm not against therapy. I've been in therapy. I have a counselor. That's a right thing to step towards. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying, though, that a therapeutic age thinks that the only thing that's wrong with us, it's not sin. There's not something at odds in our, in our soul. The problem with us is that we're sick and we just need a little bit of self-help. Now, granted, there are moments when we need help seeing the world rightly. I'm all for that. But therapeutic age says the only thing wrong with us is that we don't know ourselves well enough and that we're sick and we just need a little bit of boost. No, no, no. The Bible would say that there's something deeper wrong with us that needs to be redeemed. Lastly, we're an autonomous age. There's a sense in which this follows from the other four. But we begin to think that we can handle it on our own. We are great five-year-olds. I'd do it myself, Daddy. I don't need your help. We don't need the gods. We don't need the stories. I just need my two hands, my brain that's really smart, and a little bit of time to figure out the problems. Do you, do you understand how we are being formed by these things? Again, not saying that any one of these things in and of themselves are wrong and bad, but when they begin to dominate the way in which we see the world, we actually begin to remove the divine from our view. We begin to push God out of view. What's happened is that these myths have blinded us to what's really true. Paul Davies says it this way. He said that if the church is largely ignored today, it's not because science has finally won the age-old battle with religion, but because it has so radically reoriented our society that the biblical perspective of the world now seems largely irrelevant. I think these five things have done that, not out there, but in here and in here. In this room, and in my, our own hearts, these myths have shaped us. Frontline church, we are not immune. So here's the questions I want to ask is when, when everything gets hard, when we hit those profound moments in life, where do we go? Where do we go? What stories do we believe and what stories do we tell? These are important things for us to recognize. It's something about these profound moments that exposes what we truly believe. Those moments when we're betrayed, when we're anxious and afraid. Those moments when we suffer, or those moments in which we're alone. 
But there's something about these myths that don't actually answer the deepest questions that we have. They claim to, sure. They claim to answer all of our questions, but there are, there are questions that haunt us that these myths can't answer. And it's in these profound moments of life that we find the thinness of these cultural stories, of the thinness of these cultural myths. So let's look at these questions that still haunt us. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of man took, or saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days will be shall be 120 years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. No, we are not talking about the Nephilim today. <clears throat> Come back later. We will later. I think. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. They were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Listen to this. Let the weight of this hit you. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. What, what, what would drive this God to this? Verse 7, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, again, we're not going to unpack this today. We're going to get to this in a couple weeks. My, my point is, do you see the profound questions that emerge in this story? The questions that, that just shoot past these myths that we've told ourselves, the, their ability to speak to them. There are, there are questions that matter that these myths don't answer and can't address. These are questions that we want to explore as we walk through these 11 chapters of Genesis. These aren't just questions we bring to the text. These are questions the text will give us to ask. Questions like this, where did we come from? That question matters. Maybe put it more profoundly, why is there something rather than nothing? What does the Bible have to say about that? Questions like who names us? Where do I get my identity? Where do I receive my identity? Who gets to speak that over me? Who names me? Questions like this. Who is in control? Genesis 1 to 11. There's a lot of crazy that happens in those chapters. Who's in control of this thing? Who's actively involved? Questions like who can I trust? Talk about a question that matters. And questions like this, where is hope to be found? You see, guys, these are questions that refuse easy answers, but they demand our attention. They demand a pursuit. They demand exploration. And it's these questions that lead us back to the beginning, actually to the source of the beginning. Who was there before the beginning? This is what Genesis points us to, the God who won't leave us 
alone. Now, Genesis won't satisfy every curiosity you have. You're going to have a million questions in Genesis 1, so do I. And you know what? The text is actually very not, much, is not very interested in most of those questions. It's not. How old's the earth? Where are the brontosauruses or brontosauri? Or how do I pluralize Latin terms? Like, there are questions that we have of Genesis that are just not interested in answering. But, but those profound questions, it speaks, it gives us better questions. Here's, here's what I was thinking about as I was doing this. I, again, I, uh, no surprise, nerd alert. Um, I loved as a kid the World Book Encyclopedia. Anybody else have that set? Yeah, they're only used in like decoration in uh, coffee shops anymore because the, the data has been out, outdated for a long time. I don't know if it was ever accurate, but it was sure fun to pretend. And I would ask all kinds of questions. How big is Michigan? Um, like, where do otters sleep? I don't know. Like any question you had, it proposed to have an answer. And then my aunt started teaching or started selling in, uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. And I was like, ooh, that's even cooler than World Book. I loved encyclopedias because I had a million questions and it had a million plus one answers. That's not Genesis. Genesis is not an encyclopedia. It's not your little, it's not your little quiz book to answer every question you have. Matter of fact, Genesis is going to do less in terms of giving answers to your questions and more in raising new ones, new questions to explore. You see, Genesis is not an, is not an FAQ page. Genesis is God coming after us. It's God coming after us. As we explore Genesis, here's what, I'm, here's what we're praying happens, is that it will reframe our vision by reframing our questions. It will reframe the way we see the world, see ourselves, and see God by reframing our questions. My good friend Aaron Addison, one of our elders at Frontline South, says it brilliantly this way. The book of Genesis makes a theological argument about God, creation, humanity, and salvation. And every story, poem, and genealogy is included and masterfully framed up to make this argument. It doesn't answer all your scientific questions because it was never, that was never the point. Rather, this book aims to shape your theological vision and your worldview. It serves as God's introduction to humanity, revealing his character, goodness, and power to us. It shows us what it means for God to be God. So there are four things that I think we need to see and we will see as we walk through these 11 chapters of Genesis over the next two months. These are four things that I think we need to see as we walk through this. The first is this. We need to see God as he reveals himself to us. This is the question of theology. How do we know who he is? How do we know what he's like? How do we know what he's doing in the world? You see, Genesis is about God. It is a God-centered book because the Bible is God-centered, because, because the world is God-centered. The universe is God-centered. He's the source of it all. He's at the center of it all. He is the preeminent one. Everything emanates out of him. If we don't see God here, we're, we're wasting our time. So instead of going to Genesis, asking Genesis to describe you, Ask what Genesis has to say about who God is. The creator, the one who makes covenants, 
a sovereign judge, the one who's present and involved, the one who responds to sin and destruction with mercy and grace. That's the God we're going to encounter. The second thing we'll see as we walk through Genesis is that God names us. God names us. It's a question of anthropology. Who are we as humans? I mean, we're weird creatures. I'm not talking like some of you are weird. I'm saying all you are weird. Some of you are weirder than others, but we're all weird. Don't take that personally. There's this weird sense in which Genesis will present humanity as the crown of God's creation. It's bizarre. That, that it's, in, it's in humanity and humanity alone that his image is placed. That he makes us in the image of God. And yet the Bible will also describe us as limited and dependent. We're not the, we don't source our own life. We don't generate our own life. God gives it to us. We need him. We're dependent. We're limited. Genesis makes, makes, makes no mistake to both lift up the beauty of what it means to be human and the brokenness of humanity. It'll show us that as humans, it'll help us see our humanity in light of Gender, family, marriage, relationships, society. In Genesis, we find God name us. Thirdly, we'll find God locates us. This is the question of cosmology. What is our place in the cosmos? What is our place in history? How did we get to where we are? How, how have societies and nations and peoples changed over time to bring us to the current moment? And what does that mean about who I am and how I relate to one another? All of these questions are important questions because it also impinges on an understanding of our calling, that God would take Adam and Eve and place them in a place, puts them in a location, surrounds them with this garden and says, I want you to tend it and protect it. And then later we'll tell humanity, go, be fruitful, multiply, tend the earth. Where we're placed, where we stand in, that, in relation to creation matters and where we stand in relation to history matters. And fourthly, we'll find in Genesis that God confronts us. God confronts us. This is the question of soteriology or the theology of salvation. See, the beauty is this. Genesis is going to tell us God won't leave us alone. Now, let's look at the passage that we started this morning with, and I want to explore it for just a second. Genesis chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the, serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Can I pause for just a second? The myths of our day offer that same lie. Listen to me and you'll become wise. Did God really say, no? The ways in which we are lured 
by the lies of our age, by the lies of the enemy is really profound. We have to confront that. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. We're often drawn in by these myths because we think it's going to offer something tasty to eat. But verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound in, of the Lord God walking in the, cool, in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? That's the question I want God to confront us with for the next couple of weeks. Where are you? In what ways have we bought into the lies and eaten of the fruit thinking it will fill us with life only to find that we're trying to cover ourselves in shame? In what ways have we engaged in a world, in a cultural moment, in what we're trying to do is we're trying to save face by putting up an avatar, putting something up on Instagram that makes us look smiley when down inside I feel full of ashes. When I pretend to know the answers to the important questions, but I slink back home and hide in shame because I'm afraid. What are the ways in which we need to hear those words from God. Where are you? For some of you, you're hiding in shame. Either from other people or from God himself. But the God who sees is the God who is there, who is the God who pursues. So I want to ask this question over the next couple of weeks. I want us to ask this question over the last couple of weeks, over the next couple of weeks. And I want us to, as we engage Genesis, to let it examine us, to let it open up our hearts, to let it inquire of us. And that's what we want to do. Let's lean in. I'm going to ask you over the next 11 weeks to be reading this regularly. It does not take long to read Genesis 1 to 11. It doesn't. There's some weird stuff in there. Some really weird stuff in there. We'll have Derek deal with all the hard ones before we're done. But I want to ask you to read it at least once a week. Just read through those 11 chapters. I don't want you to go with, here are all my list of questions, world book, give me back answers. I want you to go and say, God, what questions are you asking me to ask? What questions are you raising here? That's what I want you to do. And I want to do it with you. And my prayer is that over this series, we're going to receive from God the gift of the right questions to ask. We're going to be confronted by God. And we're going to be invited to behold true beauty, wonder, and grandeur in the process. Would you pray with me?